Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. The president uh, is getting off of Air Force One. Uh, to begin his conversations with the Israeli prime minister going directly to Benjamin Netanyahu and embracing him. As the wheels of Air Force One touched down in Israel this week, those on board and beyond shared a sense of foreboding about the crisis unfolding in the Middle East. The deadly explosion at a hospital in Gaza on Tuesday has raised the stakes even further. The causes and responsibility are still emerging from the rubble, and the fog of war hangs over the troubled territory. In the wake of the Hamas attack on southern Israel in the first week of October, which killed over 1,300 people and has seen 200 taken hostage, Israel has declared its intention to stop Hamas operating from Gaza. The methods, duration and human cost of that mission are, however, contested. This will be a different kind of war because Hamas is a different kind of enemy. We will continue to have Israel's back as you work to defend your people. Can President Biden's impromptu visit this week change the course of the conflict and stop it spreading to Lebanon and across the region? One man who's advised several American presidents on wars and how to end them is David Petraeus, former director of the CIA and four-star general who's led coalition forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's my guest on Power Play this week, and he has a stark warning of what might lie ahead. This could be Mogadishu on steroids very quickly. Mogadishu on steroids. Welcome to Politico's transatlantic podcast, Power Play, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic. And my conversation with David Petraeus was recorded before the hospital explosion in Gaza. But in the wake of that incident, my expert power panel of some of Politico's best reporters will be adding their insider knowledge too. But first, General Petraeus, welcome to Power Play. Good to be with you, Anne. Thank you. I wondered what you think will unfold in Israel and in Gaza and what we should be looking out for from a military and strategic point of view especially. Well, I think first it's worth discussing how diabolically difficult this could be. The challenges here are enormous. Uh, An enemy who doesn't wear uniforms, nearly 200 hostages now reportedly, an enemy who hides his headquarters, bases, and facilities underneath hospitals, stores weapons in mosques, has demonstrated quite creativity uh, in the attack. And if they're as creative in the defense as they were in that horrific, barbaric, unspeakable uh, attack, then you'll see suicide bombers, you'll see improvised explosive devices, there will be ambushes, booby traps, 
And the urban setting, again, could not be more challenging. Uh, you have very substantial population, even after the withdrawal of many of the civilians, there will still be hundreds of thousands, if not more. And you're in high rises, again, in very densely packed areas. So this could be Mogadishu on steroids very quickly. And yet there's an urgency to this. It's very understandable that Prime Minister Netanyahu has called for and said that he is directing the destruction of Hamas, but in military terms, to a former military commander, that task doctrinally means to render the enemy incapable of accomplishing his mission without reconstitution. Uh, and that really does translate into destroying just about all their headquarters, bases, facilities, capturing or killing, if necessary, the bulk of the leaders and many of the fighters, the terrorists. Uh, and that includes, of course, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, because there are thousands of them as well. Uh, but again, doing this in a setting that is so difficult, it, it's hard for me to imagine a more difficult setting than this particular one. And I was one who commanded forces in a number of major urban operations. So the challenges here just cannot be uh, sufficiently identified. I don't think they're very, very difficult. What I would want to push you on there then it was that uh, if the Israeli government, if you were in that post, if, if you were in charge of Israel's armed forces, would you be saying this is doable or would you be advising perhaps more limited goals than this panoply that you've just laid out? Well, I'm very confident that the Israeli military leadership, and I know them and have enormous respect for them and have worked with them over the years. And now you have in the government itself, in this unity coalition, this wartime coalition, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu joined by a leader of the opposition, Benny Gantz, who was the Israeli Defense Force chief of staff and, and then was the minister of defense. The, they will very forthrightly lay out to the prime minister, this is what we can do but these are the costs. These are the, the potential downsides. And of course, if you do this the way that, again, you would need to to truly destroy Hamas, you will need to clear every building, every floor, every room, every basement, every tunnel. Uh, and then you have to leave substantial forces behind at every one of these locations where the enemy will re-infiltrate them. Uh, once you move on to the next block, to the next house, the next apartment building. So that's the reality. And then they'll also rightly be asking, and then what? Uh, because again, remember I said without reconstitution, how do you keep them from reconstituting? So in other words, is this truly going to be dramatically different from the mowing the grass as it was described in the past in the previous four or so iterations? where they've done enormous damage to Hamas, but then Hamas over time could eventually rebuild. But these are the potential outcomes. These are the costs. This is the damage and destruction that will be done. And we'd like to know what your vision uh, for Gaza is after that, especially if they take out the political wing of Hamas along the way. Who's going to govern Hamas? Who will oversee the basic services? We're moving quite a bit ahead there, so I will just jump in if I... 
could. And actually, it does take me to a question I just wanted to move to, which is President Biden, uh, Britain's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, other European leaders urging Israel to adhere to the laws of war in not targeting civilians and talk of proportionality. Now, my guest last week, Ron Prossel, who's the Israeli ambassador, you may well know, in Berlin, did not like that use of the word. The he word in New York before. Indeed. Well, you know, he's notably tough, and he was especially tough on this question of proportionality, which he felt was not really a fair one and in any way. What would be proportional, in inverted commas, given the horrors that we saw Hamas commit? But you do come to this idea, and I think it's a phrase that you've used, democracies fight with a higher moral code. Can that continue to be true, given what you've laid out as what sounds really like total war in Gaza? Sure. It's very difficult to do in an urban setting. That's why I've laid this out. But nonetheless, it does have to be done to the extent that it is possible. Israel has a concept. It's called purity in arms. And it actually describes, translates for their military doctrine, what is essentially the Geneva Convention. Of course, the laws of land warfare that were developed in the wake of the horrible actions that were part of World War II. And they know the importance of adhering to these. It's understandable, again, in the wake of this much, much worse than 9-11. Keep in mind that we lost not quite 3,000 innocent civilians in the 9-11 attacks. For Israel, this is the equivalent of what they have lost, now 1,300 uh, innocent civilians. That's the equivalent of way over 40,000. So I think it's understandable to hear the desire for revenge, but also very understandable to recognize that the way this is done still does have to be to adhere to the laws of land warfare as is absolutely possible. And where does that leave the denial of supplies, uh, critical supplies, food, water, medical supplies to parts of the population who cannot be evacuated as fast as this offensive is coming on? Now, that seems to be an area that troubles the UN. It also seems to trouble people who are not hostile to what Israel is trying to do. Does it worry you? And this idea of the, the slightly, you know, we know it from medieval times, we know it uh, from the great siege of, of Leningrad, and we know the price of that for civilians. Does that trouble you? Well, I think actually there's a recognition of that. And again, I think what you're seeing is the president of the United States is saying, we absolutely have Israel's back. But be careful, be judicious, probably not a great idea to occupy uh, Gaza. Although then the question is, okay, what's the alternative? If you, again, if all you do is just do an enormous amount of damage and then hand it back to the same people that oversaw the development of these terrorist elements or enabled them or allowed them, then what have you achieved? Yes, you'll have a period of time where they are dramatically degraded, but you should expect that they're going to come back. And again, you know, we learned a lot of these lessons the hard way. We were not sufficiently prepared with our post-conflict planning when we were able to topple the Saddam Hussein regime. And all of a sudden, and the Iraqi bureaucrats all departed along with the police, uh, contrary to the assumption that, you know, we just take the top off and the rest of the people would remain. And then there'd be a process to find a new leader around whom everyone would converge. So with your experience on that, and possibly looking back to some things that were missed, what would you be advising? I'd be advising that it it's it would be a good time to lay out a vision 
for the people of Gaza, uh, beyond the targets of these operations, uh, who are going to suffer, by the way, but they need to have some sense of what is going to follow. I think the Israeli military undoubtedly wants to have some sense of that. What is the vision? I mean, for all those that say the two-state solution is dead, I say, tell me what your alternative is, uh, because there is none. Uh, but this is the time to do it. I don't in any way want to make this comparable to 73, uh, the post-conflict phase there, because you had, you know, Henry Kissinger could literally get on the phone to uh, the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, he could talk to Hafez al-Assad in Damascus, he could talk to King Hussein in Amman, Jordan, and of course to Golda Meir, and they could do a deal, and Sadat was open to that. But Sadat was willing to recognize the right of Israel to exist. Hamas does not, and that's the, the challenge here. The US and Iran have freed five detainees each in a prisoner swap uh, involving the unfreezing by the Biden administration of around $6 billion of Iranian oil money. There are critics. We heard Tim Scott, a senator and a candidate for the Republicans in the upcoming presidential race, criticising that. Do you think that deal now looks rather less good, given the suspicion that Iran, however directly or indirectly, is, of course, a big backer of Hamas? Well, first of all, I should note here, I'm non-political in the United States. I don't even register with a party, much less vote. And I do advise members of either party and criticize uh, elements of either party. Um, in this case, uh, that $6 billion has not flowed to Iran yet. Uh, it's still on hold. My understanding is that it's going to be on longer hold if it ever gets unfrozen again, uh, given what we assume to be Iran's role in this, whether direct or indirect, certainly they are the funders of Hamas, of Hezbollah, uh, of proxy Shia militia in Iraq and Syria, Houthis, et cetera, et cetera. You don't seem to be entirely sure, and I just wonder, and also I'm thinking about your background also as director of the CIA, so you will have had visibility on this in the past, on how directly Iran did back this attack. Of course, we, as you've indicated, certainly it was preparatory in the sense of, of arming Hamas, but it could still have not approved this attack. And that seems to be a story that is rather divisive at the moment. The Wall Street Journal's run a strong piece suggesting that Iran was behind the attacks. What do you think? Depends on how you define was behind the attack. Again, my understanding is that, yes, they have long funded uh, and generally acknowledged, at least indirectly, that they're doing that. But whether they actually help directly plan or direct, I think that's probably certainly in question at best. It seems to me that Hamas dramatically improved their operational security, uh, even employed probably disinformation in the channels that they knew perhaps were monitored, if you will, or, or surveilled, understood much more effectively than in the past, how Israeli intelligence services are often upstream, as they say. They're literally they're seeing what's going to happen in advance, and obviously didn't in this case. And then employed a number of means that I think were just sort of beyond the imagination of those assessing what was going on. So again, all of these factors, I think, conspired, but a lot of it was very creative, albeit barbaric. Uh, but creative uh, actions by Hamas to knock out the surveillance system relays, the essentially the cell phone towers, this kind of thing. Uh, so a, a deep understanding and, and, of course, had maps printed 
in many cases. Um, Are you suggesting some, that intelligence came from Tehran? No, 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 no. I think this came, I think Hamas put this together. I think they have much better visibility of what goes on down in southern Israel than do people from Tehran. Let's uh, turn to Ukraine. Uh, sadly, we have more than enough wars to keep you busy in this uh, interview. So I just felt that we we should. You argue in your book that you co-wrote with Andrew Roberts, uh, British historian who often takes a, a very long lens on conflicts, you both argue that Putin chose to wage Second World War-style hostilities with devastating consequences for both Ukraine and for Russia. And as this war approaches its second winter, do you see it lasting for years, possibly as long as that famous conflict, 1939 to 45, or even longer? Well, it's certainly possible. Again, as always, the only way to answer a question like this is the way I learned when I was teaching economics, which is to say it depends, uh, and it does depend on a number of different variables, um, not the least of which is continued U.S., NATO, and Western support. The Russian commitment to this, I think, tragically, Vladimir Putin, for all of his terrible miscalculations here, you know, and he's a strategic leader that's gotten it almost all wrong. You know, he overestimated the capabilities of his forces, underestimated the Ukrainian uh, defense and resistance. He's lost the major battles uh, so far of Kiev, Sumy, Chernyiv, Kharkiv, Kharkiv Oblast, Kherson, and so forth. But the lines have uh, solidified a bit, albeit the Ukrainians continuing to fight in the south and continuing to make modest gains. But he's not yet convinced that he can't outsuffer the Ukrainians, the Europeans, and the Americans. And we have to do everything we can to enable the Ukrainians to convince him otherwise. And that's not just on the battlefield. It's also with the financial, economic, and personal sanctions and export controls, tightening those and then cracking down on those who have been evading uh, those sanctions as well. But the war in Ukraine is this really paradoxical fight, if you will, because it's, as Max Boot, the great Washington Post columnist, has put it, it's all quiet on the Western front meets Blade Runner. It's everything from World War I-style trench lines and formidable defenses in the South. You then have Cold War-era tanks and infantry fighting vehicles on both sides. But then you have increasingly cutting-edge air and maritime drones uh, that are having a very significant effect. And all of that is carried out in a context that is uniquely transparent. Never before has there been a war in which Everyone in the battlefield has a smartphone, internet access, and social media platforms and websites under which they can upload videos and photos and statements. So it's really quite all wars together. Mm. Um, it has hints as to the future of war, as Andrew and I note, signposts, but it's not really the future of war, but it's a lot more advanced in certain ways than some of the hot wars have been in recent decades. You wrote the U.S. Army's counterinsurgency field manual commanding that 2007 surge in Iraq. That was one of the more successful moments, dare I say it, of the Iraq war. But with that in mind, how do you see Ukraine achieving a breakthrough, if indeed it can at all, because its counteroffensive does seem to be slow. It hasn't yet made decisive impact, as I think you reflected in your answer to me just now, both sides are reinforcing ahead of a long winter. What would change the dynamic for Ukraine? Well, what would change it most significantly would be if the Russian forces 
cracked or crumbled. And that's possible. Again, I've been in battles where all of a sudden, after very stiff fighting, an enemy collapses. This is more psychological, I think, actually, than physical. Uh, and in those circumstances, it's very hard to predict. But that would enable Ukraine then to get within range of this southern line of communication coming from Russia across southeastern Ukraine, uh, then connecting to the forces that are just north of Crimea. And you could isolate those forces, especially uh, given what, what Ukraine has done to Crimea. So these are the kinds of factors, again, that could change the dynamic in Ukraine. But I don't want to make them out to be the base case, even though Ukrainians are determined. I was just there four weeks ago again, and their national security advisor and I were on stage together. And he stated clearly that they will continue to fight. This is not just the summer and fall offensive. This is going to be the continued offensive through the winter and into the spring. You raised the counterinsurgency field manual. Yes. Um, and, you know, in, in Ukraine is not a counterinsurgency construct. This is much more a conventional military campaign, uh, again, with elements from World War I, World War II, the Cold War, and now uh, cutting edge future systems. But when you think of an intellectual construct for a campaign, such as that which Israel is poised to implement, it actually would be helpful in that case to think of this as a counterinsurgency campaign rather than as a strictly conventional military campaign. This is not Desert Storm or the Gulf War where mm. you're, you're fighting just tank on tank in the desert. There's no civilians on the battlefield, as they say, and all the rest of this. As we've laid out, this is much more about a war among the peoples, which is what a counterinsurgency campaign is. And the reason this is useful is it reminds you about the third component of a campaign. So every military campaign is a mix of offensive, defensive, and stability operations. But a conventional fight, like, again, the Gulf War, the stability operations component, which is the nation building, the restoration of basic services, repair of damage, uh, infrastructure, refurbishment of critical civilian facilities, and so forth. You know, we didn't have to do a lot of that after we ran the Iraqi army out of Kuwait. The Kuwaitis could do that. And they had the funding and the mm -hmm. government and the structure and institutions to do that. In Gaza, this the idea of the stability component brings you right back to the idea of then what? Once the military has accomplished its mission of destroying Hamas or carrying out the sufficient destruction of Hamas, to achieve what it is their prime minister has in mind, what about the stability operations component? Who is going to restore yeah. basic services? This comes back to the humanitarian issues, which are already uh, concerns around the world. And that this will force you, again, to think more of that. What about governance? What about rule of law, such as it is? What about, yeah. again, repair of all this damage that will be done in destruction? Uh, that will, again, almost necessarily be done, however regrettable and, and terrible that is. But Hamas deserves the responsibility for this. This is at their feet, not at the Israelis' feet, although much of the world will not see it that way uh, over time. So I think it's actually worth thinking about that much broader approach that counterinsurgency re requires. And by the way, it's a longer 
long-term vision. You don't win counterinsurgencies in a year or two. They typically take a decade or more, as we saw in Iraq, uh, as we saw in Afghanistan. Coming up on Power Play, our power panel will be joining me to explore what you've just heard. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology. It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Power Play isn't just about our featured guests. It's also about how Politico's top journalists on either side of the Atlantic can help us unpack what we've heard. Joining me this week are Alex Ward, Politico's national security reporter in Washington, D.C., and Joshua Pozana, Politico's senior defence reporter in Berlin. Welcome to you both to Power Play. Hi, Anne. Hi. So, Alex, the blast at the Ahli Hospital in Gaza, the horrendous loss of life there, has curtailed President Biden's trip. The planned summit in Jordan with Arab leaders has been cancelled. So what, realistically, are you expecting can be achieved by this? I mean, this is a tough one, right? Because at this moment, we still don't know what really happened. You have the Israelis blaming a Palestinian group. You have a Palestinian group blaming the Israelis. President Joe Biden, who is in Israel, has already basically said he doesn't think it was Israel, that I guess thereby claiming it was uh, Palestinians uh, behind it, um, although he says the U.S. will still investigate. So this is going to be hard to find out. I mean, it's hard to know without investigators on the ground. It's going to be hard to know in a fog of war situation, of course, as things are changing constantly. But what we do know is that this blast has roiled the region has completely already shifted what seems to be the politics of this conflict to the point that Biden could meet with uh, leaders in Jordan. He'll just be in Israel. And now it looks like he's just there standing with Israel only as the region is convulsing and railing against uh, Israel at this point. So it could backfire on him, especially down the line, especially say Israel's ground invasion of Gaza goes poorly or there are other atrocities that happen down the line. It's going to be a tough one, not only just, of course, the conflict itself, but uh, politically for the president. Joshua, we heard General Petraeus there talking about the risk of the war widening out. How seriously do you think the US and other Israeli allies will be taking that? And as far as your reporting is going, are you seeing the risks in the same way that my guest did? Yeah, exactly. And and to agree with what Alex said, I, th- I think this really has great potential to escalate very quickly. Now, 
The issue in Europe, where I'm sitting in Berlin now, is that European governments have very limited room to manoeuvre. And Petraeus told you in the in the interview that this, especially in Gaza, in the prospect of a counterinsurgency ground offensive, risks turning into a kind of Mogadishu on steroids situation, which brings back some very, very bad memories and underscores the risk of this situation escalating very quickly. And I think to speak specifically to the issue of the blast at the hospital, you now have European governments scrambling now with the response because there's limited room for them really to manoeuvre on either side. Chancellor Schultz has called for an investigation. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has put out public comment saying that this needs to be investigated too. So now we have a great deal of questions about what the stance is going to be from Israel's allies moving forward. If I may very quickly, I mean, the Mogadishu on steroids, what he's referring to is the infamous Black Hawk Down scenario where US forces were well, literally, Black Hawks were taken out by Somali militants. They were then left in Mogadishu to fight block by block to get out, and it led to a lot of deaths. And it was a very embarrassing thing for the Bill Clinton administration to the point that there was tons of discussion about, you know, should the U.S. ever intervene in such warfare again? That um, has made the U.S. resistant, in theory, to such fighting until, of course, there was a rock in Afghanistan where there was city by city fighting. But the reason I, I was struck by it is because I think the general meant it in the sense of it's going to be extremely bad, right? And and of course he meant it that way, but in the sense of I think the image that comes to your mind are sort of two great fighting forces at it. I want to be clear precisely why this could be Mogadishu on steroids, but maybe not in the way you think. You've got Hamas and civilians fighting, probably, or other Palestinian groups. And this will be hard because they won't necessarily, they're not wearing uniforms, right? They will look like civilians and they could attack Israelis uh, with surprise. I'm sure they booby-trapped Gaza immensely already to this point. I mean, they were probably inviting this kind of Israeli reaction. And as strong a fighting force as Israel is, and I want to be clear, they are very good military and they've got great special operators. They do have many reservists, right? I mean, they called it 360,000 reservists. And these folks are not necessarily expert at urban warfare. So then that's one of the hardest fighting styles there are. So you could imagine that not only is it already sort of a booby-trapped and hard operating environment to begin with, now you have, even though there will be a ton of great Israeli troops, a lot that aren't so trained. And that's going to be usually... Um, that usually ends up in a lot of trouble for those folks who are not so trained. So it's a, it's by Mogadishu on steroids, what I took from it is like, I just don't want anyone to get the sense that this is going to be necessarily the two most professional fighting forces of all time fighting each other. If anything, it's going to be a lot of sort of like civilian on civilian. And also, he makes the point in the interview, too, that this is not a short process. Should this happen, should a ground offensive deteriorate into this kind of ground fighting in the Gaza Strip, this is going to be something that takes years to resolve itself, not a matter of months. And so the prospect of graphic imagery, brutal images coming out of there on a daily, weekly basis is something nobody wants to see. Uh, Joshua, just staying with you for a moment, will we hear the kind of warnings, uh, and I appreciate uh, as Alex was interpreting them slightly differently, which was really interesting when he was taking what happened there back in 1993 and how much it's applicable or not to now, but what the risks are. How are European capitals seeing it? Are they seeing in the watch and wait and warn way? How seriously do they expect to be taken anyway? 
It's a really good question. I think certainly Germany, with the history of the country and the responsibility its leaders have to Israel and the Jewish people, this is a major, major topic here. I think there are serious questions now over the last few days about how sustainable total support for Israel is under effectively any circumstance. And I think this is a conversation that's beginning to play out in Berlin, certainly playing out in France too, also potentially in the UK moving forward. And this really has such an important political consequence and resonance, not only for what's happening now in the Middle East, but also for the situation in major cities across Europe. You you had a situation here in Germany, in Berlin now, where the local authorities have banned protests, pro-Palestinian protests, because they fear extremist tendencies will be on show. And that's causing problems now in certain communities in the city. And I, I think the longer this conflict goes, the more graphic it becomes, the more political problems the likes of Olaf Scholz are going to have, Emmanuel Macron is going to have. And we'll see this. What are you actually seeing? You're, you're in Berlin, Joshua. What are you actually seeing on the, the streets there? I mean, we've seen some pretty heated demonstrations on either side, but in fairness, that's true in, in most capitals. Is there a particular a sense of kind of frisson, an edge to the response by certain groups, as you, you put it, in Berlin? Definitely. The early hours after the attack started on Israel, you would have seen, I think all of our listeners would have seen the images and the videos of some people handing out sweets on the streets of the Neukölln district of the city in celebration of the attacks. That obviously captured attention worldwide, not just within Germany. And the response from the authorities, especially here in Berlin at a city level, has been to therefore try to stop break-up protests, rallies, vigils for uh, the Palestinian people in the city. There certainly was an instance over the weekend that I was in attendance on the sidelines at just to see what was happening at the Brandenburg Gate, which is a very iconic part of Berlin, where the police um, stopped and dispersed a peaceful protest of individuals waving the Palestinian flag and asking for the bombing to stop. And I think this puts leaders in a very, very difficult position moving forward. Should the scenes that we're beginning to see in Gaza and should the, the hospital situation we've seen become more of a regular occurrence over the next few days? Different context there, Alex, uh, in the US, of course, it's uh, so much of a, a bigger place with a very diverse opinions uh, on these matters. But how do you think this is all landing in terms of broader public opinion and what kind of pressure that's likely to put on Joe Biden in this seemingly impossible diplomatic task that he set himself heading off to the Middle East? Well, it's interesting, right? Because Biden has made being sort of a global statesman one of the pillars of his re-election push. And let's note that his, you know, the election is only just over a year away, which I'm sure for European years they go, that seems like forever ago. No, 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 we're in the middle of the election season now. Like it is kind of already Biden Trump now. So the polls matter to a certain extent, not a lot, but to a certain extent. And the polls show that Biden's handling of Israel is not overly popular. There was a CNN poll that showed 16%, one six said they liked the way he was handling the conflict. Uh, There was an ABC poll that said that there was only 49% that thought his general policy towards Israel was correct. And of course, Israel has great political resonance in the United States. Um, It is a key ally. It is something that uh, the Republican base cares deeply about, a lot of Democrats as well. So the way he deals with Israel, arguably more than the way he deals with Ukraine, will matter more to Biden's election pitch. And even then on Ukraine, the polls are starting to show that the U.S. public is starting to get tired of supporting Ukraine with weapons uh, and time. So I think Biden's let's literal hugging of Israel, I mean, he hugged Bibi Netanyahu, is, I think, first and foremost, the fact that Biden's views of Israel are, are for many, especially many progressives, are sort of stuck in the older democratic eras of the 80s and 90s. 
but it's just how he feels, right? He's just a very strong, staunch ally of Israel. But we, I don't think we can discount the fact that he's thinking about 2024 here, in large part because he's been given an opening by his most likely rival, Donald Trump, who called Hezbollah very smart and criticized Netanyahu for not fully supporting, in, in Trump's view, the assassination of Iran's Qasem Soleimani when Trump was president. So this trip has amazing political resonance. Thank you to my power panel both. Bye, Alex. Bye, thanks for having me. And Joshua in Berlin. Bye-bye, all the best. For more of our interviews and analysis, follow PowerPlay on your favourite podcast platform. And if you want to get in touch directly with me and our team from wherever you are in the world, you can email us, powerplay at politico.eu. The producer in London is Peter Snowden. And from Berlin, the executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. Do join us next week for another edition of Power Play. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.